0: we're looking at the book of Psalms, God's songbook. We're looking at Psalm 34. um, Psalm 34 is a beautiful psalm in and of itself. Verse eight, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Verse 15, tech team's going to have to fire through here. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. Verse 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Like a lot of the psalms, it's a moving, beautiful psalm. But this psalm in particular, it's even more moving, and it's like some songs that you might be able to think of that you've got in your back catalogue. It's even more moving when you know the backstory to the psalm, um, I don't know if you've got a Bible in front of you, and I can't remember if it was on the text at the start. This psalm is of David when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. That context is not insignificant in this psalm. Do you know about David? Are you familiar with the character of David? Maybe some of you will be familiar with the character of David, the shepherd boy who wrote the psalms, who killed the giant, the shepherd boy that became the hero who everybody worshipped. He was good looking, he was awesome at fighting, he had everything. Everybody loved him, even Saul, King Saul. That is until everybody loved him so much they wanted to make him king. God wanted to make him king. It seemed inevitable that he would be king. At that point, we read that Saul, maybe he was going mad already, went mad. He was raging at the idea. And you know how this story works in the ancient world, When, or well, even not so ancient, even up until recent history. If somebody's there to oppose your crown, if there's a threat to your crown, what do you do? You chase them to death. You kill them. David was pursued to death. He had no peace. He had anxiety. He was hounded. He had nowhere to rest himself. He had nowhere to lay his head. He couldn't trust anybody. If you read through some of the Psalms, you will see between the lines or on the lines of the page a broken man. Somebody who was terrified. Somebody who was at an end of himself. We read in the Psalms of David describing night terrors. Of of it being like there were wolves chasing after him. Of him having no sleep. Everybody was after him. He was terrified. He had a price on his head. They wanted to kill him. And in his panic and in his desperation, he fleed, that's definitely not the right word, but there you go, to a place called Gath. In his panic, he was running away. He was going insane. And the people at Gath would remember him because that's where Goliath was from, the Philistine. And at his wit's end, terrified, broken, as the people grab him and bring him before the king, this is what it tells us in 1 Samuel 21, he feigns madness. I don't know how much he was feigning madness. I think he was a, he was a broken man. I think he was having a breakdown. And he cries out, as we read in this psalm, he cries out to God, and God saves him. If you've ever been around or had personal experience of breakdown, I don't know if you've had that. I don't know if you know somebody who's been through that. I've had a little bit of that. When you read through the pages of the Psalms, a couple of things becomes evident. David's words are really accurate. You can't get any sleep. You feel like you've been chased, harsh as it seems, by wolves. There's night terrors, but more than that when you have a breakdown or if you know somebody that's had a breakdown, whilst you never ever want to go there again, whilst you never want to be in that place again, what you learn there is invaluable. What you learn in the pits at your wits end when you're at an end of yourself I mean, I even look back now a couple of years and I think I don't, nothing in me wants to go back to that place. Maybe you know, maybe you've been through some of this and you say to yourself, I don't ever want to go back to that place. But the, the world that we see, the view we get of ourselves in that place is invaluable. Who your friends are, who you are, how vulnerable you are, how strong you're able to be, how precious your life is, and if you're a Christian, if you're somebody like me, what saves you? You don't know Jesus is all you need, so Jesus is all that you've got. The invaluable lessons of breakdown. The backstory to this psalm is a picture of salvation, being saved. I don't know if you're all Christians, I don't know where where you're at with that salvation story thing, I don't know if you, if how far down that road you've got. I don't know if you've made a profession of faith. This is a picture of salvation. Salvation is, it's not signing up to be part of a club. It's not just keeping traditions. It's not being able to rock up at church every week. It's realizing, like David, in his brokenness, that you've not got all the answers to the world's problems you're not going to figure all of those problems out. You need to cry out for help. And it's realizing in that cry out for help that help is available, that God can answer that. This, the backstory to this psalm is a salvation story, and the text reveals the invaluable insights of a saved person. These are like the memoirs of somebody who realizes what it means to be Rescued, this is what's on offer for us. This is the stuff that we need to hold if we're Christians or it's the stuff that you might be missing out on if you're not. So it's a few things that we need to hold on to. The first thing that we are reminded of when we are broken and we, we have a salvation story and we have a story of rescue is that it gives us a different view of our circumstances. Rescued people People who have been to the bottom and been saved have a different view of their circumstances. Fear, I don't know if you've got a Bible open in front of you or you read through the text with me. Fear is a huge theme in this psalm. David had lots of things to be afraid of. He was living in a cave. He was hiding in a cave. I don't know if you've ever been in a cave. That's scary in and of itself, but that's not all he was scared of. Everybody was chasing him. Everything in front of him was scary. All of his future had anxiety towards him. Can you track with that? Have you ever felt life being a bit like that when you look out into the future and just seeing fear? David's experience of rescue flips the way that fear impacts his life in an incredible way. It changes how he views scary things. See verse four, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. So, just note what he says in that moment. Not just the present fear of this king that's going to kill me or King Saul that's going to chase after me. David says his experience of rescue meant that he could have confidence. Get this? About all of his fears, everything that he might possibly be scared of in this world. How is that? I want to give you a bit of an example of how that might be possible. I think we see it in the text. I don't know if any of you here are going through um, exams, some of you are going through exams, some of you have got exams coming up, some of you have done exams in the past. For you, for you younger students, this is, a, this is an illustration especially uh, for you, you will have had in your experience times when you will have taken home an impossible question. Part of your homework will just have been this impossible maths question, and you would have asked with great hope and great expectation your parents to come and help you with this. I had rich experience of this in COVID as my children brought before me what just looked like impossible algebraic equations. And I'm a well-meaning parent. I love uh, my children. And as I looked down at this impossible task and offered them some antiquated solution, or quickly ran out of the room to Google it and eventually find an answer. And somehow, we muddled through and got an answer. But as I I realized as I left them that as they looked on their potential to complete mathematics GCSE, I hadn't canceled all of their worries. I hadn't resolved it. In fact, I probably made it worse. It was all still up in the air. When I'm helping out my kids, if that's the help that they've got, they're still vulnerable. But imagine you go in the next day, and your math teacher is a lovely lady. In fact, your teacher is the head of maths, and she sits before you. You put your hand up, and you bring this impossible equation, and she sits there and sits there with you and explains it out beautifully and says to you, I'm here for you always. I'll be accessible and ready, ready to help you at any point. If you get that sort of encouragement, if that's your help, you're going to start to have some confidence that you're going to pass your maths. GCSE in fact if you're dealing with the hardest maths problem that is out there and you know you've got this great help helping you actually you're going to look at life and go maybe I'm not just going to pass maths but maybe maybe I'll maybe I'll be all right maybe I'll pass everything if this is the help that I've got this is what david realizes as he's rescued in this impossible circumstance when he's at death's door when everything is stacked against him. If he can be saved from death, the impossible, and if the person that's saving him is God, then he's not just saved from that. If it's death that he's saved from, and if it's God that is saving him, then he can look at everything he might need to be worried about down the line and say to himself, do you know what, I think this might just be okay. This is the hope that we have. This is what it means to be saved. This is the faith that we possess. It's not that you're never going to have any trouble. It's not that you're never going to have any bother. It's that death's conquered. It's that you stand right before God. The impossible problem has been resolved, and it's God that's resolved it. So, with all of the troubles and all of the worries that we can look at, somehow, we can reorder ourselves. We can say, do you know what? I think everything's going to be all right. If it's God that's saving me, and if God can save me from the impossible, then I'm going to be okay. In fact, it's more than that. See verse 9 and 10. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord Lack no good thing. The worst thing that you could come across, the lions that grow weak and hungry, even the, when rich and powerful people can't cope, even when everything is against us, David says, it's going to be okay. I can have confidence in God. And it's even more than that. Do you see the way that his fear journey flips right round? Verses 9 through to 14. It becomes an appeal. His view of fear changes. Can you see what it changes to? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in Him. Fear the Lord, you His holy people. For those who fear Him lack nothing. The lions grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. He says, not only do you change what you're scared of, not only does it affect your fears, but actually you should be more scared of him. You should be more in awe of God. Not only does he calm you through your fears, he redirects them so that the thing that you're most in awe of and most afraid of is not the things of this world, actually it's God. And that changes you. That changes things for you. If you'll excuse me, and another indulgent camping anecdote. We were away camping as a family a long time ago when when my kids, so this is to save their embarrassment, were very small and the rain was thunderous. It was thunderous in the tent and it felt like the tent was going to collapse under the weight of the rain and the thunder. And there was a scream from the other room, not my room, me and Jude, a scream from the other room. Are we going to be all right? Was the cry in the rain. Are we going to be all right? I, I initially dealt with this problem and threw it back. Yeah, just, just a passive. Yes, we're going to be all right. That happened two or three times. Eventually, Jude was aroused, I'm so glad she's next door for this anecdote, particularly helpful for me. And she said, as the panic grew, and I'll do the accent, Are you more scared than me? Are you more scared of the rain? Is what she said with real ferocity. It was a good point. And in that moment, what all my kids realized, in equal measure, was they were way more scared not of the rain, which was terrifying. It was banging down on the tent, but they were more scared of mom. In fact, it wasn't just fear. They knew that mom spoke with the most authority in this situation. Even though the rain was banging down, even though it felt like it was oppressively, it, it was going to destroy the tent, the tent was going to cave away, everything would suggest that. The kids knew in that moment that Jude spoke with the most authority. And they, even in fear, <laughs> even with the rain beating down, I don't know if they got any sleep, but they were good as gold. God says to us, you should fear me most. God's word reveals to us that we should be more in awe of him. Even when the rain is bashing down, even when it looks like everything's going to pop all around us. And he says, when you do that, the outcome of that, even even when everything's tough, even when the world is going to chaos, you should walk in my ways. He says, you should fear me most. And fearing me means that you keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. You turn from evil and do good. You seek peace and pursue it. This is the first thing that we see in the text of the rescued person. You get a different look on their circumstances. The second thing that they see is they get a different look of themselves. When you get rescued, you get a different look at yourself. You're able to see yourself in a different way. Four or six, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look on him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Rescue, and you can take issue with me um, after if you want, but I've been emphatic to make a point and to get you to listen. Rescue is like a personality silver bullet. Going through the experience of rescue is a game changer for your character. I don't know if you've watched any of the rescue shows they litter our television channels, mostly, mostly, I think, because they're low budget. And we watch them. We, we, we soak them up. But I would say it's not just for the drama of the rescue show. Do you know the way the shows go through? There's the drama reenactment. At the end, there's a monologue piece. And at the end of these rescue shows, you have the most beautiful people that you are ever going to meet in your life. Rescue Shapes them in a beautiful way. They get two personality traits that just can't come together in ordinary life. They have a lust for life. They have that exuberant second chance feeling. It's every, I've, somehow I've survived this and I've got a lust for life. I'm looking out the world. I am going to grab every moment. And at the same time as they have that, they have what normally doesn't come along with that. Because that feeling normally goes straight to your head. They have humility because they realize that they've been rescued. It's a beautiful sight to meet somebody who is completely humble and completely full of life. And ordinarily, those two paths can't run together. We've got a lust for life and it goes to our head and we feel great about everything. Or we we get humbled and we feel a bit down about everything. But in rescue, in rescue we get both of these. Do you see what David has in verse six? David's a good looking guy, he's a warrior, He's going to be a king, got people following him. But what he realizes is, and it's such a valuable lesson, he's a poor man. Uh, If you dig around at the meaning of the word, it means he just doesn't have the means to pay. He's humbled. But not only is he humbled, you see what he is in verse 5? Those who look on him are radiant, their faces are never Covered with shame. It's not a showy thing, this radiance. When you think about radiance, it's the idea of beauty just bursting out. Um, the, the root meaning of the word also shares an ex- the, the idea that it's, it's of a, when a mother sees a child that they've long given up for dead. It's just that unexpressible joy. This is what the rescued person, you if you're a, a believer, you, if you share this story, this is what we have. The personality is silver bullet. We've got a second chance. Every day counts. We've got this beautiful lust for life that God gives us because we know that we are rescued. And at the same time, we can't become twits because we've not done anything to get it. The very fact that we've got it humbles us. How are you going on with your silver bullet personality? Uh, the one thing that I bet about this rescue show, and I know about what it's like to be a Christian who's rescued, is that rescued people get the silver bullet, but it's quickly forgotten. We forget that we've been rescued. We forget that we are, somebody's pulled us out of the pit. We can soon lose our joy. We can quickly become twits. You see what the deal breaker is down there in verse 5? See what keeps the personality silver bullet? Do you see what it's dependent on? Those who look to Him are radiant. The radiance doesn't come from themselves, it comes when they are looking at their Savior. We are saved. Those, if you have given your life to Jesus in that sense, if you have. Accepted his rescue, then you are saved. But in terms of a picture, what that looks like, if you can imagine God, Jesus reaching in, pulling you out of the pit, he doesn't fling us onto some sort of desert island and it's all done and we're all happy. We are saved. I don't know how, how you're getting on with being saved. Have you got it all together? Are you in eternity? Are you completed? My understanding of salvation is that God has saved us, but he had never let go of our hand. He is pulling us out of the storm. He is grabbing onto us. He is holding us tight. That's what it means to be rescued. It's not all done. He holds onto us and he says to us in this passage, and he reminds us that we need to look at him. The change comes when we're able to see the rescuer. I imagine when you've been rescued, you quickly forget what's happened. It probably passes by quite quickly, but then if you revisit the site or you see the person that's rescued you, your emotions come flooding back. The personality silver bullet comes flooding back. We have a savior to gaze at, who as we take communion reminds us frequently of what he's done for us and brings us to a point of rescue and redemption. It gives us a different view of ourselves. The last thing that it does, I think, is it gives us a different view of God. Verse 1 through 3. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify Lord with me let us exalt his name together I wonder how you're getting on with praise I wonder what you think about what it means to praise God if you never thought about that before what your praise life is like how do you get on when we sing the songs how do you get on with worship at home my experience I'm 44 been in church most of my life is it can be really flat sometimes Sometimes for me, I've sat through church service after church service and there's been an emptiness, even a fakeness about my praise. It can be hard to get in the zone, can't it? The band starts up, you think, all right, I'm not really there yet, so I'm not really ready to praise. We can easily drop it. One minute we think God's great, the next minute we've totally forgotten about who he is. Do you see the praise that David has here? I will extol the Lord at all time. His praise will always be on my lips. I don't think that's just him blabbering on all the time. I think what he's saying is, I think what he's found is an enduring praise. Even in difficult times, even when he's miles away from God, even when he's going through really tough times, he's found a voice that can look up to God and still be thankful and still praise him. Not only is it that, it's also an evangelical praise. Do you see what what it says after that? I will glorify the Lord, let the afflicted hear and rejoice, glorify the Lord with me, let us exalt his name together. He's saying, come on, isn't he great? Isn't it brilliant what he's done? Isn't it amazing what we have? It's the kind of thing that we do in church, I don't know if you've noticed, when we praise God. Somebody stands at the front and says, we're going to sing this song because God's great. Jude said it as she opened up. We're going to praise him because he's brilliant and he's great. It's the book of Psalms that tells us to do it. Over and over and over again. Praise him, He's great. You read through the book of Psalms, every couple of Psalms, you'll be challenged. You'll be like, should I praise him? Praise him, praise him, praise him. Really interesting. This is one of the atheists, the smart atheists, biggest sticking points. One of the things, a, a door closer for people who are searching for faith. Um, Christopher Hitchens puts it really well. Stephen Fry puts it really well. Very eloquent speakers. It breaks my heart to hear it, but they put it really well. How can a God uh, create everybody? Then they get stuck. The world gets a bit broken. Then he zooms in to offer rescue. This is essentially the story that I'm telling you. And then he says, by the way, you should really thank me for that. You should praise me for that. It's a huge sticking point for people. How can God do that? How can there be a God who does that? Is that? Does that really make sense? Can I tally with a God who would do that? And it shuts the door for Stephen Fry. He's happy with that. He's like, no, there's no way. That would make God a narcissist. And he can't claim to be good if he's a narcissist. C.S. Lewis got stuck on this. He was a pretty famous atheist. He said to himself, we despise the men who demand continuous assurance of their own virtue. But he didn't get stuck there. He didn't stay there. In his logical mind, his wonderful logical mind, he reasoned, if there's something admirable out there, if there's something worthy, if there's something brilliant out there, then the big crime is that it's not gonna be praised. The big error is that we don't point it out. Can you imagine if you'd never if somebody had been to Wembley the atmosphere at Wembley and they'd never told you about it. They'd not shouted out the awesomeness of it. They just didn't pass it on. Your mate went to Wembley. It was incredible. They just never came back and told you about it. Imagine nobody had ever told you about what it was like to have a kiss. To kiss somebody or to hold somebody's hand or to grow old together with somebody. Imagine if Somebody had never told you what pizza and Coke tasted like. Nobody had ever come to you and go, oh, you need to have a pizza and a Coke, or you need to go there for pizza and Coke. When something is admirable and worthy, the crime is not to praise it. The crime is to ignore it. C.S. Lewis says we are robbing the world if we don't sing the praises of admirable things. Here's the good news. Here's the amazing news. Here's why it's right to praise. And not just to praise, not just for me to go, we should praise him, not just for you to rancor with it in your hearts, not even for God to tell us himself to praise him. There is something out there that is worthy of praise. This is the point. There is something out there that grabs our attention, that it is a crime if we don't shout about it and sing about it. In a world of fake news, there's actually a truth. In a world that's so wobbly, there is some certainty. In a world where life is short, death has been conquered. In a world where war is inevitable, and it is, love wins. In a world that's broken, there is rescue. There is something out there that is praiseworthy. It is right for us to praise him. Come, let us praise him together. It's too good to be quiet about it. It's too good even that God himself, who orchestrates the whole thing, can't keep quiet about it. And it's right that he demands it and lets us know about it. There's something to praise. There's something to shout about. So, final thing. It changes how we see others. It changes our message for others. changes how we look at other people. This whole psalm, David changes from feeling it for himself to looking out at what it means for other people. It's an evangelical psalm. All the way through he's saying, I need to tell somebody about this. Sharing your faith, if you're a person of faith, and you want to pass it on to somebody. It's tough, isn't it? Sometimes. Maybe, maybe you've got it licked, maybe you're better than me, but when I'm in those positions where I'm, where I'm down to share my faith, it can be a tricky thing. Where do you start? How much do you tell them about the Bible? How much do you tell them about this or about that? How much do you want to explain? What I would say to you is remember the lesson from David. The power of a rescued person, the story of a rescued person is compelling. David has tasted it. And this this is all that he does in his preach to the world. He's tasted its goodness. He's tasted the forgiveness that comes with it. He's tasted the hope that comes with it. He's tasted the rescue. And he says to us in verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. I've tried this. I've bitten into it, and it's amazing. Think of that. When you're in that tricky spot, maybe when you're wanting to pass on your faith and you're thinking, where do I start with this? Just start with, well, at least for me, it tasted amazing. To know that I could be forgiven when I've done what I've done. Don't know where you're at, don't know where you'll go with it, but for me it was amazing. When I didn't have any hope, when everything I seemed to touch went wrong, to know that I am in contact with somebody who holds all things in his hands, Man, you have got to just try this. Taste and see that the Lord is good.